Good evening. We may be a small crowd, but I know this is a fantastic crowd. It's my honor to be here tonight. Um, my name is Bronwyn Maiden. I'm assistant dean at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, the professional campus right down the street. We're your neighbor. And um, the reason why I'm here is that I know Dr. Parks. I've known Sherry for a long time, but also I'm a volunteer for the library. Um, and if any of you would like to stand up here and do this in the future, you need to let us know because we're always looking for volunteers, and I do this a couple of times during the year. This is going to be a podcast, um, so it means that we can play it back later. It also means that if you have questions, I'm going to have a microphone that I'm going to uh, run around to you to ask you to speak in so that we really get uh, you very, very clearly. So tonight, we're going to hear from um, Sherry. Dr. Park, some of you may know her from her NPR um, shows. I know I was in Atlanta one day and I was in the airport and I looked up and there was Sherry on TV talking about the presidential election. And I was, I didn't make a lot of noise, but I was like, oh, that's my girlfriend up there. You know, I know people, but I still was not let on the airplane any earlier than others. Um, but she has a new book out. Um, she's been getting a lot of press around this. I happened to see her at the book festival this weekend. I popped in, and she did a really good talk on the book. And then I understand she, you were on NPR, was it yesterday, this week, um, one of my students told me that they heard you on NPR this week. So this book, and I don't want to take any more time, is really um, fantastic. It's something that we need to get our hands around and to begin to think about what she's saying and what does it mean to be a black woman and what are some of the myths and the realities of it. What can we take that we learn from the past from our mothers um, from our ancestors, but also what does it mean to the wider society? So I think with that, Sherry, I'm going to sit down and have you come on up and um, I guess maybe read or give us a little talk in terms of your book. Tell us some things. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to read and talk, and, um, and I, during the talking part, um, am very comfortable with you talking back to me. So... That's, that's fine. Um, this is a book that began as an academic book. And as I gave talks from it, women were coming up to me insisting that it become a more popular book. So I rewrote. I had 300 pages of academic ease. And there's some academics in the room. And, and a friend of, actually a former student of mine and a friend of mine, Craig Seymour, who wrote the Luther Vandross book, biography that people were holding up at the wake and I were having dinner and I said this doesn't want to be an academic book and he's very blunt and he said um, Nicole knows him and he said so why is it and I didn't have a good reason so I started over <laughs> and, um, it really started out as a way for me to explain my life to me there were things going on and, and demands being made that I did not understand um, and some of which I recount in the book, and I felt that I needed to begin to understand that. So I'm going to read a bit and then talk some more, but I do want to make clear that while I'm, this is in many ways a celebration and examination of the strong black woman, I never make the statement that she is the only strong black woman in American culture. That would be a ridiculous statement. I do say she is the only one that, ha that has been celebrated in the way she has, and we can talk about why not, uh, why the others have not been. 
there are lots of Baltimore stories in this book, and it actually begins with a Baltimore story. And, and what I'm about to read to you is based on some photographs that appeared in the Baltimore Sun. Jill Jenkins cried out. Outside, a young man walked up to her house. The father of Jill's children, Maurice Sr., dropped his cell phone mid-conversation and ran out of the house in the direction that Jill was looking. She tried to catch him, to stop him, but he brushed her away. He caught the young man and began to beat him. Maurice Sr. was a big man who worked for the city, and he soon had the young man on the ground. Some neighbor men joined in with him, beating and kicking the man. Jill ran out too, pushed through the small band of men, and threw herself on the man they were beating. She covered him with her whole body, cradled his head in her own hands. She yelled at the men, and they stopped. The night before, her son, Maurice Jr., had been shot dead on the stoop of a house a few steps from her door while hanging out with his teenage friends. A man with his face covered had walked up, shot him, and walked away. This young man, who had been there with Maurice Jr., was not shot. The family figured he had set up their son, had made sure Maurice Jr. was there, was where he was when the murderer arrived there. A reporter and a photographer from the Baltimore Sun were there, working on what was supposed to have been another routine story of a teenage black boy dead in the streets of Baltimore that summer. When the fight broke out, the two women left quickly, but not before they had gotten another, better story and clicked off some photographs. Two days after Jill Jenkins' son was killed, the story ran in the Baltimore Sun, accompanied by two photographs, one, both of which are in the book, one of Maurice Sr. and an unidentified man beating the young man, and another of Jill Jenkins crouched over the man she thought had killed her son. Later, the photograph of the beating would win two national photojournalism prizes, but there were no prizes for the photograph of Jill Jenkins. In an instant, the day after the sudden and violent death of her oldest child, her only son, Jill Jenkins broke through her grief with a compassion, a strength that would seem to most people to be outside human capacity. I am a black woman, and so I am supposed to be Jill Jenkins. All black women are. As I share Jill Jenkins, with, as I share Jill Jenkins story with other black women, a pattern emerged. They would finish the story before I did. She stopped it, didn't she? They expected it of her. They even provided her with a motivation. Too much violence, enough already. What some people might see as an act of heroism, they saw as her doing what she was supposed to do, as her following a script that they all knew so well that each one could leap into action without a conscious thought. The circumstances provided Jill Jenkins with too little time or opportunity to make a considered choice. She was able to look past her family to help someone else, whether or not he deserved it. I was raised to be strong and nurturing. As far back as I can see, so were all the women in my family. We never asked why. The survival of our family and our race seemed enough. In black life, Women are the fierce girlies, mamas, and grandmamas who hold together black families and neighborhoods through sheer determination. Folks consider them to be the backbones of their families and culture, with back being an important operative word. Black females in this country are born into the army of fierce angels, and they have no choice in the matter. 
Membership is required, and the expectations placed on them are completely universal. All black women are supposed to be strong and selfless. Generations of people, black, white, and just about everybody else, have been raised with the underlying assumption that black women will save them. Training for the, world, excuse me, training for the role starts at birth. Black women traditionally raise their daughters to be sensible and responsible and are often much harder on them than they are on their sons. As girls become women, they are expected to become wise, their connections to God personal and intimate. They are expected to become confident and worthy of their idealized assignment as the universal helpers. They often tend to take on responsibility for other people, even strangers. In American popular culture, strong black women stand like friendly sentinels, reliable, warm, selfless, feisty, and funny, as saviors and fierce protectors, watching, waiting, and wanting only to help. They're seen as the generous women who show up just in the nick of time to save anybody who needs it, whether or not anybody asks them. And what an attractive idea that random but interested dark women are watching over us, ready to pop in just when we are in deep, deep trouble and in need of advice and sanctuary. In the mainstream popular culture, black women are usually shown supporting and rescuing white people, those they know and those they don't. Sometimes these women are so extreme, so stereotyped, they are cringe-worthy. Like all stereotypes, there is a grain of truth to this. I know how wonderful it is to have these strong black women, my mother, my aunts, my sister, my friends, in my life. They are wise, giving, selfless, and self-effacing, fierce, nurturing, all at the same time. From the outside, it looks like a win-win arrangement to be so idealized and useful. But admiration for the strong black woman comes with standards that are humanly impossible to sustain over a lifetime without huge sacrifices. Every day, black women pick up a load that is heavy and complicated. The role is overwhelming. It calls for incredible levels of emotional, spiritual, and intellectual energy combined with a selflessness that is truly superhuman and wildly unrealistic. And nobody asked them if they wanted the job. Something very amazing happened um, as I studied that picture and that story. Um, because across town, um, someone else was looking at it. And I wanted to make sure I read that part. Since there have been stories, there have been stories of a big black female giving birth to the world. The oldest creation stories in the world, including many of the Western and African ones, begin that way. She, it, they often begin with darkness. And even in the Christian Genesis, and I don't mean to offend anybody here, um, the darkness is there before God does anything. In other creation stories, it's more overt. The world begins when a dark everything gives birth to it. She, nothing provokes it. She decides. Um, the Greek, the Sumerian, the oldest recorded creation stories begin that way. The black first mother is, she is everything. And so all by herself, she births the heavens and the earth. She keeps the underworld for herself. The black first mother is hidden within traditions of every major religion on the planet, including Christianity. 
She was and still is used to represent transformations, and the transformative black female is present but underrecognized in Western cultures. I had only just admitted that the strong black woman was, a, was as familiar to me as my own breath. Then I found that she had been leading a double life, that other people, entire countries and continents of them, had relationships with a strong and dark female as intimate as their own souls. Relationships that could not be explained by romantic childhood memories or television. They appealed to the dark feminine in times of personal crisis. For them, she is a friend through the worst, the powerful and caring miracle worker. So there are two parallel stories involving black women. One that black women know intimately through their daily lives, and another that uses images that look like them and are mostly without their participation or even knowledge. The resurging reverence for the sacred dark feminine and the expectations placed on strong black women in American daily lives are two trains that started from the same station. They run along on tracks that are parallel but just out of sight, always pacing but never meeting up again. Even when black women know of the sacred use of black femaleness, some are reluctant to put her at the same level as a male Jesus. Others have not been so reluctant. Across town, Sister Mary Aquine O'Neill of the Mount St. Agnes Theological Center for Women saw the same photo of Jill Jenkins saving the man who may have helped kill her son. She also saw the sacred dark feminine, so she composed and held a loving prayer service that used religious and literary language to draw Jill into the long tradition of reverence for the dark feminine. African and African-descended women are being connected over and over to the dark feminine, The connection was made as soon as Europeans saw them, and that connection has continued for centuries. When Europeans enslaved Africans, they loaded their own mythological storylines onto the backs of the black women they kidnapped, bought, and sold. The dark feminine became the mammy, a twisted extreme aberration that Southerns used in their pro-slavery propaganda. The idea of mammy was made to fulfill the wishes of white slave owners for happy, loving slaves, There are few historical instances of women like her. Yet the propaganda mammy is still hurled at women as a slur, especially if they succeed in mainstream society. Um, And I've said a lot, and I've made some fairly bold claims, and I don't want to leave the impression that they were easy to make. I went back and forth about whether I wanted to say things as strongly as I said them, but the research said that that's what was there, that there I found the sacred dark feminine on every continent. And she's there um, because the darkness is there, because we often think of darkness as something that is, that is dangerous. You know, when we leave here, all of us will clutch our bags and scurry to our cars. Um, but I actually had an epiphany. My daughter, who Brahman knows, is um, in equestrian, I'm actually quite proud of her. Right now, she's fifth in the nation at her level, which the only black kid for hundreds and hundreds of riders. But she also does um, she does some something at the barn where she rides. It's called foal watch, and you sit in the dark and you watch the mare um, who's about to have a foal, so that she doesn't have it alone. But the foal watch is set in place at night. And, and the kids take turns watching it, and you know, everybody wants to be there to make a call. Um, and then you get to watch the birth. And I'm sitting there under a red light so the mayor can't see me because I'm trying to let the kids sleep. And I've sit, I have been sitting for days trying to figure out why 
all of these creation stories, because a lot of times I'm trying to find not only a needle in a haystack, but a needle somebody's tried to hide. Um, I'm trying to figure out why these, these creation stories always start at night, because shouldn't they start 50-50, sometimes in the day, sometimes in the night, because one follows the other, but they don't. And then, you know, I'm looking at this mayor who's looking at me like, go away so I can have this baby already. And I have an epiphany. So the next morning, I, I, I asked the owner of the, of the barn, who used to be a curator at the Baltimore Zoo, so she knows these things. I said, are most mammals born at night? And she said, 85% of mammals are born at night. We're mammals. And, and she said, it's because, um, it, one, the predators are asleep. And two, it gives mom and baby time, literally, to get back on their feet so that they can run. It takes about an hour. And so I realized that I had, it, it, I had absorbed this idea of the darkness being dangerous, too, without giving equal sway to the darkness as being protective, as being safe. And that was the line, is that this this female figure is the protective and fierce darkness. Because if you think about it from a child's perspective, the perfect parent is someone who can nurture you and protect you. And I interviewed a number of, of, of black people, and they, many, one, I have yet, and this is a very unscientific thing I'm about to say, so it's not in the book, but I have yet to meet a functional black person who doesn't have a black woman somewhere in their past who would do anything for them. And I, I asked black students about that person, and they all had that person, and they talked about an ex exquisite type of feeling that knowing that this woman loved you and nurtured you, but could protect you from anybody who came. Like, my husband says he's the B team. Like, you want to deal with me. You do not want to deal with Sherry when it comes to Kelsey. He's six foot three. So, um, and that's that idea of that there's someone who can be both. And so that's that everything. That's that allness figure that, that I was just talking about. When I had Kelsey, my conversation, I called my mom, who was, who was too ill to come. And the first thing she said was, did you ever think you could love somebody this much enough to kill or die for? That was the first thing she said to me. And it was exactly what I was feeling. It wasn't kind of the old, sweet kind of, you know, pink things that I was supposed, that I thought I was supposed, it was like, oh, this is what fierceness feels like. <laughs> um, and that's what I'm talking about. And certainly um, other types of darkness besides the night, the womb is dark. And the, the womb has, has water, and water is dark. And so there are all of these connections and all these narratives all over the world. Even in cultures where there were not dark women, is what I'm saying. There is this connection. And it was associated with all women. Masculinity was associated with lightness. Uh, darkness was, was associated with femininity. And what happened between then and now is, is as uh, patriarchy began to build, lighter women, particularly in Europe now, because I, I deal primarily with the cultures that feed directly into the United States, so Africa and the United States, for this issue. Um, you can watch the white women being stripped of that power because they were the ones that the men were going to marry, and that lo thing loaded on to the dark woman. In Greek culture, which has that same um, creation story of the darkness giving birth, 
Zeus became eventually the you know, big man on campus. He was the most powerful god. There was only one goddess in which he was, Hesiod uses the word that gets translated as in awe. And it was night. You have fun editing this, aren't you? <laughs> um, and what's interesting about that is that um, there is, and this is really important, this becomes really important, that Zeus and the other gods were in awe of night, but there's very little evidence of her being worshipped. So all of that got loaded onto her, and then she became a marginal figure. It's very useful in the margins, um, because you can load all these things on, and at their church fathers, who at the same time they, they were vilifying white women, were praising uh, first night, um, pages and pages of praise for beloved, um, for other dark women in the Bible, because they were on the margins. They weren't planning to marry them, and that's part what happened. So when Europeans first saw slaves, they already had a very well-established idea of color theory and the myth, the myth around dark feminine and dark masculine. Black was the original color. Black was the strongest color. They had figured out, this is not me saying this, this is what they were saying, that if you mix black with anything else, it was still black. And so medieval knights would fight for who got to wear the black armor because they, that, was, that made you the most fierce um, knight. Black masculinity was considered permanence, and you can see where that comes from. Black femininity was considered to be transformation from the darkness to the light. And if you remember back to, I mean, to, your, to your Ovid and, and, all, and Milton and all of those, you will remember that they're, they're, they're black females who guide people from the darkness into the light, like Oprah. Uh, it's, it's, she, I think this is the only way I can explain the phenomenal power that Oprah has in our culture, is that she is a secular representation of the sacred dark feminine. So you have that. Um, and, and that is exactly how mammies were used during slavery, is that you, slave owners had to bring women into their homes to take care of their children because of the Victorian ideal of what a lady was. She couldn't do all that dirty work. Somebody had to do that dirty work. And despite a lot of evidence of black women as cooks killing people, because if you think about what a, what a cook can do, um, Every, you, in the narratives, they will say, oh, so-and-so died. Um, we think it might have been the cook, but my person would never do that. My mammy would never do that. And so there's a, this great um, delusion, really, that, that this woman loved her. Domestics were the first people to leave when slavery was over. Um, and that there's a legacy of that still. African Americans send their daughters to college, have always sent their daughters to college in greater numbers than their, than their men, um, because that was the one guarantee to keep them out of somebody's kitchen. We still have that legacy. Go on, a historic, go on any campus, not just a historical black campus. You'll see a lot more black women, and the family will work, because that's still a threat. Um, and so that... that idea that we don't want women in the kitchen if we can help it gave rise to black women being t leaving and the last to come back there were many states after emancipation when when 
black men came back looking for jobs where you could not hire the man unless his wife was hired too. That was the only way they got her back into the kitchen. So there's this long period, and, cer and certainly after the Civil War, there was a long period where in the popular culture there was a trope, and it shows up in film. I mean, Gone with the Wind is still the most favorite film of Americans, uh, except for African Americans. And, I mean, this is even more astounding if you read the book. The book, and I wonder if it's just because they know the title, but when they do surveys of the favorite book, that is at the top as well. Um, but that idea that Mammy, this, the war is over, Mammy's still there, um, taking care of Scarlet is that idea. And there were lots of, before that, before 1939, there were lots and lots of, of songs and theatrical bits and skits where the Confederate soldier comes home back to the home place and there's nobody there but Mammy. And she takes him into his bosom. There's actually a lot of talk. Mammy's not asexual. There's a whole lot of talk about Mammy's bosom. And he, she, he, folds, he gets folded into that bosom and he's in heaven. And she sings to him and she tells him the story of his people. Um, not her people, but his people. And she loves him. And, and he, he is healed. And that gets, that gets done over and over again. Now, is there, do people want to talk now at all? You've been nodding and smiling and being very nice. The, the baby wants to talk. <laughs> if not, I'll, I'll read some more. It's up to you. Read some more? Okay. Um, like I said, there were a lot, there's, there's some Baltimore stories in here. Um, and I'm going to read a bit about something else first, and then I'm going to talk about uh, a woman that some of you may know. Um, in the book, I, I document many times where this transformation has happened over and over again. Um, and I was struck by um, the transformation that Nikki Giovanni created right after Virginia Tech and the massacre. This is the last chapter, and it just has the title, Fierce Angels. On an April 2007 morning, poet and university distinguished professor of English, Nikki Giovanni, paused and looked out at the mass of Virginia Tech families and staff assembled before her. Just the day before, a student had killed 33 people, including himself, and injured 15 more in the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. The campus administration hastily called a convocation, and the president asked Giovanni to speak. The major networks have been covering the story since it broke and aired the convocation live. The most active face of the administration was Dr. Zenobia Hikes, a black woman and the university's vice president for student affairs, who had, been, who had spent the previous night caring for the dead and the traumatized and was now moving around the stage carrying out her duties as mistress of ceremony with a fierce dignity. The Daily Cause, a major blogger, wrote, there was an emptiness shock, horror, a terrible bewilderment, bereavement, loss, and despair, until the poet Nikki Giovanni spoke. Widely known, as, and you've had her here, um, so I know some of you have seen her. Widely known as an activist poet, Nikki Giovanni is often irreverent and provocative. She likes to make joyful mischief, to poke her audience with a sharp stick, to puncture their old assumptions, all the while with a smile that says, I love you, but you needed to hear that. 
Giovanni's mother, who lived with her near the university, had died not long before, and her sister had died six weeks after their mother. Grief was something she knew about too closely. Some of the dead students had been in her classes. In front of an audience of predominantly white parents and students, she stood out in her black suit, white shirt, and tie with her white curly hair cropped close. She's a small woman, so the big blingy rhinestone pen that spelled Hokies stood out on her lapel. She read her poem, We Are Virginia Tech, and told her listeners that they would be strong enough to embrace their their grief. She told the parents that they did not deserve to lose their children, as children in Africa or Mexico or Appalachia do not deserve to die because of things someone else did. She told them all that they would all live, that they would also laugh again, and that they would prevail. She repeated, we will prevail, and we are Virginia Tech, again and again, part poem, part chant. She finished, embraced the president, and walked to the side of the stage, but the audience was not done with her. They stood and clapped for a minute. Then, as if on cue, the energy surged. The the clapping swelled, joined by voices that began to cheer and whoop, then slid into another more rhythmic chant. Let's go, Hokies. Over and over, swelling louder and louder. The mood had shifted from numb sadness to a shared spirit of survival and resilience, a communal understanding that no one present would ever forget what happened, but would live past the trauma. Giovanni acknowledged the shift by raising her arms, and this photograph is in the book too, igniting another crescendo of cheers. Dr. Zenobia Heights retook the stage, laughing. It was a lilting, joyful laugh. She told the crowd, boy, didn't we need that? The two black women, Heights and Genovia, had lifted the convocation with emotion. Giovanni's poem had transformed a solemn ceremony into a call for survival, for persistence in the face of death. The official Virginia Tech Remembrance website echoes her words, we will continue to invent the future through our blood and our tears through all this sadness. We will prevail. Giovanni later told NPR radio host Michelle Martin that she knew that the grief-stricken would have to, quote, embrace their sadness, that, quote, the only way out of any tragedy is love. And then she said, she knew that they would have to be inspired to move on, to be strong and brave enough to know that they would be able to laugh again. She was fulfilling the archetypal job of the dark feminine, delivering the families back to the realm of the living. None of the media commentators found it odd that a small black female poet had helped so many white families see that they would live again. The university, the media, and the country needed Giovanni at that moment, and she was gracious enough to oblige them. Zenobia Hikes, whose personality the campus newspaper called the, quote, warmest on campus, did not live on much longer. She died from heart complications in the fall after the massacre. Giovanni told Martin that she considered Hikes to be the last victim of the massacre, that the responsibility she took on weighed too heavily on her heart. In Hike's obituary in the Virginia Tech student newspaper, colleagues and students recalled her calm during the massacre and convocation. 
Giovanni and Hikes came to symbolize for Virginia Tech a fierce caring, strong enough to help them meet head on the, horrifics, the horrific elements of life. There are a couple of references I make in here that, that delivering somebody from um, death back into life, that transformation. Remember I said that, um, that during the Victorian period, particularly um, the, the, I referred to this, but I, I'm telling you the fuller part now, um, often mourning occurred before the person was fully dead. And so if you had enough affluence, you went out into the parlor to begin mourning while the servant stayed and watched the person die. And so usually the report of how the death occurred was from the slave or the, or the other servant. And often in these stories, as they're recounting, there is, there is a mystical occurrence. And in one, which was a, slave, uh, a narrative about a slave, the woman says, the white woman who's writing the book says, and I have this on, on good authority because my slave woman told me this. That, and so she saw the spirit rise is what she's talking about. And so that transformation is very common in, in those stories. Um, I was just recently talking to someone from Poland and uh, where the reverence for the Black Madonna is, is and it, there's actually a picture of the, the, the Pope kneeling before the Polish Black Madonna, Pope John Paul II. Um, and the Black Madonna is, is very prominent there, and she um, cures diseases and repels armies and cures petulance. And they call what she does the transformation. Um, and so, so you get that. Fierce love has long been a specialty of black women. Harriet Tubman is one of the stars of the American storybook and as strong as any person could be. Illiterate and in constant pain, the, future, the fugitive slave woman nevertheless returned to the South over and over again to rescue hundreds of others from slavery under the noses of the slave owners. In the Civil War, she worked behind Confederate lines as a spy for the Union Army. A friend of Tupman, Sarah Bradford, wrote scenes in the life of Harriet Tupman to document Tupman's life because even after her service during the war, the U.S. government was slow in awarding her a government pension. Bradford compared Tupman to Joan of Arc and Florence Nightingale, quote, for not one of these women has shown more courage and power of endurance in facing danger and death to relieve human suffering than has this woman in her heroic and successful endeavors to reach and save all of whom she might of her oppressed and suffering race and to pilot them from the land of bondage to the promised land of liberty. Abolitionist John Brown called her General Tubman and one of the best and bravest persons on this continent. Frederick Douglass wrote in a letter to her, Quote, the midnight sky and the silent tears have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Accepting John Brown of sacred memory, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have, End quote. Parts of Tupman's story have been told over and over. How she led out men, women, and children, how if they faltered, she pointed her gun at their heads, pushing them on to go or die. Yet, through her story, as often told, it usually tells of a woman who was only steely and determined, robbing Tubman of the totality of her humanity. When the details of a full emotional life are breathed back into her story, we can imagine her whole again, strong but fallible. She was a woman who loved strongly and whose very strength came from the love she carried. 
Her first trip back was to get her husband. He refused to go. It must have been a heartbreaking time. She had risked everything to come back for him, only to find that he was not strong enough, trusting enough, or in love enough to go with her. We can only wonder what she might have said to him. Man, I risked my safety, my freedom, my life to come back for you, and you are not ready? But she did not have time. She found someone else who was ready and took him. The most famous stories show her as stoic, but she was also compassionate. Her very determination grew out of love. She said, quote, I have heard their groans and sighs and seen their tears, and I would give every drop of blood in my veins to free them. End quote. As she took slaves to the north, the reward for her capture grew richer, the next trip more dangerous, and yet she kept going back because she cared so much. When her trail got too hot, her friends had to spirit her away to Canada to keep her from going back too soon. She was funny, able to see humor in the most dangerous of circumstances. Bradford wrote, quote, Sometimes when she and her party were concealed in the woods, they saw their pursuers pass on their horses down the high road, taking up the advertisements for them on the fences and trees. And then how we laughed, said Tupman. We was the fools, and they was the wise men, but we wasn't fool enough to go down the high road in the broad daylight. It takes a certain kind of fierceness to laugh that way. And there I'm trying to set up that, um, that we do not allow in this image that we have of black women their full humanity, um, that they are warm and funny, that the actual fierceness comes out of love. And we don't acknowledge that. Um, this, that type of humor is something that I certainly know. Um, I was in a meeting, and it was a very serious meeting at the university, and there was one other black woman um, there, and we were discussing the fate of, of a graduate student who had become psychotic. And universities don't do well with mental illness because it's not clear where the line is. And, and the, the black woman said, we don't do well with mental illness. Um, and she made the point I just made, and I looked at her and I said, because... If they did, we would have to excuse half the faculty. And she and I, to the horror of the rest of the room, laughed. Um, and we laughed for, you know, a couple minutes, and then we settled down, and we went back to work trying to figure out how we were going to handle this. And the rest of the room was just kind of like, what, what just happened? And afterwards, we, we kind of nodded and looked at each other and acknowledged that you have to do that because you... You have to laugh to keep going. And that was why in this last chapter, I talk about black women. Because what, and that, that drive that Harriet Tubman, I mean, she's the great woman, she's the legend, but I found that same pushing till I can't push anymore was really common. Exhaustion is really common. When I said that this is a role that it has impossible standards, I didn't mean that the women didn't keep pushing to get there. I just meant that nobody should be asked to do that much on their own. Um, and certainly I started this book because I was burned out, but everybody I talked to had been burned out at one point or the other. And when I asked, why do you do it? They said, because if I don't, it won't get done. Um, I asked black men what would happen if black women just stopped, just stopped. And I had trouble getting an answer because they said she wouldn't do that. 
They wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. I said, well, just think about it. Try to imagine. They said, she wouldn't do that. She won't. They weren't even willing to imagine that. And finally, I got one man. I kept pushing and finally he said, then we would be done. When I asked black women, they basically said the same thing, that I wouldn't do that, but they smiled. They could imagine it, at least. Um, and that we, when I say that black women have not been taught to take care of ourselves, we've been, we've been trained to take care of everybody else in the room. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in the room, you, you, but often that is not reciprocated. I was interviewing young black people about that person. I would say, is, is, is there a person? And I actually asked in a gender-neutral way because I wasn't trying to load it. And, but all but one came back with a woman, almost exactly. And, and one young woman told me about a story about her aunt who took off her winter coat and gave it to her. She needed a coat, and her aunt said, here, take mine. And I said... And did your aunt get another coat? And she looked at me, and her eyes got wide, and she realized she never knew. She hadn't asked. And, and that, that is the image. Um, and when I asked black women, how did, you, how did you know to do this? How did you come to do this? They often said, we don't remember a time when we didn't do this. And so much so that you almost thought, well, one had heard the last interview because the, the refrain came to be, I think it's in my DNA. Um, and so there's this, this thing. And I, and, and I have to admit that my daughter, watching my daughter, is almost like she came out of the womb like this already. Um, when she was in third grade, um, she had, she's tall, my daughter's tall. She finally had a teacher who looked just like her, this tall, gorgeous black woman, marathon runner, was pregnant and died, had an aneurysm and died in the middle of the year. Tina Baker, lovely, lovely woman. Um, and the director was calling around to tell the parents that this, they were telling the girls what had happened. And I said, and I, she's old enough now. I used to never say her name. But those of you who used to listen to the radio, I was very careful never to say her name. But now she has given me permission. She's 15 to, to say her name. Um, I said, so how is Kelsey? And she said, oh, Kelsey's fine. Kelsey's out there doing grief counseling. And she was hugging the other girls and telling them it would be okay. But when I picked her up, she was, I saw her. I mean, when I was in, 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 I saw her. But when she got in the car, she dropped her backpack and collapsed, exhausted. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it started, essentially. Um, that she had mothered everybody else in her grade, according to the director. But she hadn't, she, only after she was done did she stop. And so I'm trying to teach her to take care of herself, too. Um, but it's, 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 it's important. Um, a woman that some of you may know, a couple of women that you may know, um, I also say that um, we shouldn't throw the whole image out, which is what some people thought I should do. Um, when this book was being shopped around, there were re some rejections. And I'm fortunate enough that there were, there were some acceptances. But um, the agent said, because I had to go get an agent in order to, to do this, the agent said, well, it's been kind of interesting. There are some white male editors who are upset that, um, do you want me to slow down? Or, okay, well then I, I want to I get to at least um, reading. Joan Hairston is a woman in West Virginia. The coal hills of West Virginia would seem to be one of the most unlikely places to find a strong black woman, but Joan Hairston is an unlikely woman. 
When I asked her how she felt about a college professor calling her up, saying she was a strong black woman, a fierce angel, she said it was about right. She figured it was a step up. In the coal mines of West Virginia, black women are rare. Quote, they figured I was stupid. That, that suited Joan Hairston just fine. I let them. That way they don't know what's about to hit them. She started out of love, too, like Harriet Tubman and a lot of the women. Her father was one of the few black men at the mines of any stature. He was a safety man, a mid-level job meant to ensure the safety of the workers. But when he retired, the mine management tried to keep his pension. Quote, he was my first one. They laughed at me. A woman and a black woman at that? We sued them and won. End quote. Joan was not a lawyer, but she knew how to build a case. Her most famous case started with a drug bust. A woman came home to find a policeman pinning her husband to the ground in front of their house. They had just put in a new door, and her husband asked her to get the key to let the police in so they would not break down the door. The woman started toward the house. The police told her to go back. She did, but they tackled her anyway. They knocked her to the ground, cracking open her skull. Quote, they beat her like a dog, Joan told me. I asked the black ministers for help. They said, why are you getting involved with people who are selling drugs? They were scared. I said, it doesn't matter what they did or did not do. Nobody deserves to be beaten like she was beaten. They took her to a hospital out of town so nobody could see her and said that nobody could take pictures. I went to the hospital room to visit. I said, can I take your picture? She pulled up her sheets, and I took pictures. The newspaper wouldn't print them, but the TV station in the next town did. Then the Washington, D.C. papers took it up. Now they're sitting in a big, new, pretty house. They never did find any drugs in that house. As director of New Empowerment for Women Plus, Joan went to the mines and asked, do you have federal grants? If they had federal, she knew. She did her homework, she knew. If they had federal grants, they couldn't keep women out of the mines. Of course, she already knew that they did. One mine official told her, I don't like you, but I respect you. Fine with her. Um, I'm going to skip. And another woman that you may know um, who works for the American Service Friends Committee is Dominique Stevenson. Dominique Stevenson is a calm, pretty woman with a knowing stillness of someone who had witnessed much yet managed to find her own peace in a difficult world. Um, she runs a justice program where she goes into men's prisons. And she tells me a story where um, she was in the prison and the lights went out. And when the lights go out, there's a protocol that they're supposed to come and get all the outsiders, but they didn't come to get her. And she wasn't afraid. I mean, when I talk about her calm, it is, I mean, she is so calm. She, the prisoners didn't hurt her, and she knew that they would not hurt her. And what's important about Dominique is that she says, I don't approach them like a man. Many people go into prisons and they try to be bigger and tougher than the inmates because they're scared. She says, I approach them like a woman. I approach them with all that I am, and they respond. These are people who have never respected anybody, and they respect her for that. Because um, I argue, and this is really what's important too, I argue that we shouldn't throw this image out, but that we should face it and, and learn to control our energies. And I argue that this is a traditional organic model of female power. And what's been really interesting to watch is how progressive white women have responded to the book. Um, so I was 
invited, when Bronwyn saw me speaking, that was the radical book tent. I had been invited to talk, and I've been reviewed in Ms. and I don't know if you can say this in a podcast, but it's a word that sounds like witch. <laughs> uh, magazine, which is a very kind of cutting-edge um, neo-feminist magazine, and, been a, and, and they're watching this image. And the, the stakes are getting even higher for this image because environmentalists, and I read a little bit about this, environmentalists are rediscovering the dark feminine because she is literally Mother Earth. And they are saying that until we embrace this new way of engaging the earth that is compassionate and fierce, we won't be able to save the planet. Um, New Agers are uh, beginning to embrace the dark feminine, and I found lots of writing of, of dreams of the dark sacred feminine saving people. Jungian therapists... Who, and we don't even know how many Jungian therapists there are in the country. The man who wrote the book, The Jungians, told me that he thinks in the San Francisco area alone there are a thousand Jungian therapists. <clears throat> Jung was a contemporary of, of uh, Freud, and he um, spent a lot of time talking about mythology and archetypes, and he thought that the sacred dark feminine was an important one. And, and I'll make this last point. And what's really important about Jung is that the... the 12-step programs are all based on Jungianism. I found a letter from the, from the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous who says um, to Jung, thank you, because my program is basically watered down Jungianism. And you know how 12-step programs say you have to hit bottom before you move up? Well, in Jungianism, you're not at the bottom alone. The sacred dark feminine is there with you, and she ushers you back toward the light. That's how pervasive and under-recognized, at the same time, this, this image is. So, okay. Done. Does anyone have any questions for Dr. Park? Hello. It was really good um, hearing you talk about your book. I just have um, one question. Okay. How do you feel about, um, well, my generation, I just turned 30, but the generation after me, how do you feel they're being influenced by the strong black woman? Do you see that they're embracing it, or do you see that they're kind of taking their own role to, you know, growing up and being their own woman, or do you think they're, you know, I think it depends. From what I have picked up, it depends on social class. Working-class black women, young or old, feel they don't have a choice, that they still have to fulfill this role. Um, affluent and highly educated women who have other types of power are the ones who are asking this question, well, do I... And I actually, I started with a great deal of ambivalence, too, um, to this image, because my students, the ones who really liked me, were treating me like mammy. You know, and I had to say, wait a minute, what, what, what is going on here? And I, you know, I'm you know, this you know, new professional, da-da-da, um, but people are still reacting to me in that, that old way. I think it is wonderful that women have a choice, and I certainly didn't write this book telling people what they had to be. I consider myself a public intellectual, and I did the homework. So I lead you all the way up to the point where you have to make a decision for yourself. But I think before we can do that, we need to know what it is. Because I think we have a knee-jerk reaction to, to this image because it's so heavy. 
Um, and I, I, I interviewed a woman. I, I interviewed some 30-something women. So I actually did. And I, I interviewed them about their lives and their friends' lives. And one woman who was very astute said, with my friends, it depends on whether they have had children or not. The ones who are the young professionals who are kind of living the city life um, feel they have a choice. But as soon as they have a child, they lock in. She had noticed that they lock in to that role. And this role obviously doesn't have to be a biological mother. Um, and it doesn't even, I think, mean to be maternal. But in that last chapter, there are women who are operating as grassroots leaders from this position. Sheila Johnson, who founded BET, is in the book. Um, she's divorced from her husband, in part because of the videos on BET. She didn't like it. But she decided that God gave her the, that money. She got her half of the billions. And she's now running water lines through villages in Africa. And she's got enough staff that she doesn't ever have to step foot in an African village. But whenever she runs a water line, she goes. Um, and she's there on the day they open it. Because what was happening, is, as women were leaving the village to gather water, they were getting raped and murdered. Um, and she's, when I called her up and said, because that's what I was doing, I was calling up people saying, I think you're a fierce angel. And this billionaire, I mean, she goes, they go back and forth between whether she's richer or Oprah's richer, and you know, it's just more money than any of us will ever see. And, and she was honored. She said, I am honored to be called a fierce angel. And so, and El, uh, Elna Holmes Norton, did you know that she conducted the first class action suit in the United States? She did. Um, and it was because she was trying to protect a group of women who worked at Newsweek. And uh, so these were women who said, I asked Elna Holmes Norton what advice she would give to women, and she said, know what you already know. And so what I would say is, whether you choose to use it or not is up to you, but at least know what you got. The quick thing. I just know for myself the way I was brought up, I wasn't really brought up to like cooking, cleaning, all that stuff. Like mm-hmm. my job was to go to school, get good grades, right. get a good job. So now I feel like did I miss that part? Well, it's I feel not like sometimes like as far as marriage and things like that, like some things I don't know how to do because I've always been focused on becoming the best me that I can be. And and, so, and I would say that that's very very healthy. I. I suspect, though, that the way people see you, I was on a stage at, at the Art Institute of Chicago, um, and there was a woman who was a graduate student who had introduced me and some other people, and I was talking about this. And I, I looked, she was still beside me, sitting down, and I looked, and she was crying. And at, she said, I said, are you okay? And she said, you just explained my life to me. I, I can't tell you how many times people have said, you just explained my life to me. And afterwards, because you, know, you don't want to make people cry in front of an audience of people, and she said, I wonder why these people keep coming up to me asking me for advice when I don't know any more than they do. But they keep putting me in this situation. And she said, and so I have to carry my burdens and their burdens too. So one, I would say just because you have a healthier uh, doesn't mean a viewpoint doesn't mean that other people won't put this on you and you need to know how to respond to that and it's not about cooking and cleaning that's I mean that's one of the the trappings of it it really is this compassionate fierceness but you need to be compassionate and fierce about yourself too Um, and so I, I think it's fine for you to have a choice I want to change the tone a little bit and I want to ask you a question because part of the way that I know you is a cultural critic 
and your work around movies and pop culture, so you know where I'm going. So I want you to comment about the thesis of your book and Tyler Perry's movies mm -hmm. using Medea, which I see as like a mammy figure um, or characterization, um, and how that relates and and how that relates. I'll just okay. let you answer. Thank well, first you. let me talk about Mammy for a minute because you heard me use the term propaganda Mammy. And what I say is that you've got the commercialized Aunt Jemima Mammy who was used to sell stuff, um, who is related to that, that post-reconstruction Mammy of the loving Mammy, the ever-smiling Mammy, who is, who's made up. And I, I argue that African Americans have given over our foremothers to that propaganda Mammy. That if you look at what historically slave women did, if they, I mean, first of all, they were slaves, so they didn't have an enormous amount of power. But what power they did have if they were in that position, they used it for their families and their children. And I actually use, on purpose, one of the most commonly known um, Civil War narratives, which is Mary Chestnut and her slave Molly. And Molly's often had, uh, held up because she's so loyal. But if you actually read Mary Chestnut, Molly left Mary often to go take care of her own children. And at one time, Mary chastised her because Molly was, was feeding not only her children but other slave children out the back door. And Mary says, you know, I, you need to stop doing that. And Molly says, here, then you take the keys to the pantry. And if you think you can handle this as well as I can, then, you know, we're, we're both fools. Um, but any woman who tells you she won't feed hers is lying. And so there are these two images that I think we have to keep pulled apart, um, but we keep pulling them back together. because, And that's actually, keep, it's interesting, because calling a black woman a mammy is about the worst thing you can say. It's worse than the B word, actually, in black vernacular. And, we, and the women who get called that are often women who have some power in the outside culture, like Oprah has been called a mammy. Um, and what did she do to do that, uh, to get that? Um, so, I, so I think that's important. Medea is interesting, and Medea is, is a, kind of a punching bag for black intellectuals because, I mean, she, she can be cringeworthy. But what I, what I say about Medea is important to honor her audience, that Medea was born in church basements. I mean, Tyler Perry, before he was this, this huge millionaire, was doing plays in church basements. His core audience is middle-aged, middle-class black women. Medea and, and Luther have the same audience, basically. And I, I think it's important not to, to rob that audience of their agency. Yes, Medea is larger than life. I don't think anybody's going to say Medea is a realistic historical portrayal of black women. Um, but, and I think the politics of drag are important here because you know, black, black male comedians always dressing up in, in black women's dresses. And in this case, she is saying, and if you listen, if you can go to a live theater to one, uh, one of his plays or even to a movie theater where Medea is playing and just listen to, to the audience because black audiences talk to the screen. What black women are saying is that Medea is saying in an exaggerated way the truths of their lives. Um, is that an embarrassing truth for some people? Probably. But they are saying that this is my life given to me, writ back, and I can laugh at it because I know that that's a man in a dress. And so that, that's what I mean by the politics of drag.
Do you also think that the fierce angel has always been present, even back in biblical days, when um, Pharaoh's daughter took um, baby Jesus into the castle, all the way to where Naomi, uh, Naomi and Ruth had to deal with the death, and then also where Esther saved her people, but then it, it was upon their experiences that they had to encounter, which gave them the compassion, which gave them the passion, which gave them the drive to be fierce angels. Well, I think of the situation. I mean, throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition, I mean, the 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 Jewish rabbis talk a lot about the sacred dark feminine, um, and if you go back into those documents and to the, the apocrypha, which literally means left out, you begin to see lots of dark feminine images, wisdom who is depersonalized in newer Bibles, is a being in the older scripture, Chokmah. And I'm probably, I'm messing that up, but I can't make that guttural sound quite right. Is the cloud that, that um, protects the Jews during Exodus is a dark being. Um, it's, they're, they're all over the place once you start looking for them. And, and hopefully tonight they'll be all over the place for you. I mean, my, my husband, who's a sociologist, was pretty skeptical of this image at first, and then um, now he sees them everywhere. I mean, in, in the popular culture as well. Just when you have a character if, who you can't figure out how they're going to get out of this predicament, he'll say, there's a black woman coming, isn't there? <laughs> and and, and she, she does the transformation, and then they go on about their business. But, but there's lots in the scripture. And in the book, I, I, I don't list all of them because it, I, I am guilty already of there being a long list. Um, and the editor said enough. But there's a lot. Hello. Hi. Um, thank you so much for your images. You have really a lot of, you put a lot of thoughts into my head. One thought, though, that you had was about the male sort of saying, that a woman can never stop doing her job or that a male could never see her stop. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about how can men be incorporated into this world then? How can that incorporation happen? Well, I think um, two things. I, I really expected to get a bit of a backlash from this book. Um, and I only got, I got one angry phone call. And by the end of the conversation, I, call, I mean, he left his, I don't know why he left his phone number, but I called him back. Um, and we had a conversation at the end. He said, oh, I see what you mean, because one doesn't take away from the other. And that was, I mean, I, used to, I would get people saying, but what about the men? Aren't we supposed to be building up the men? And I'll quote my husband that, you know, a strong black man doesn't fear a strong black woman. I mean, they, they are necessary partners. And what happened, and, I, and this is a long-winded answer to your question, is that in, in the s- tribes from which most of the slaves were brought, um, in West Africa, they were from other places, but there were a lot that came from West Africa. The, the tribes were matrilineal. There was a parity, but a shared power that the men took care of the village. The women took care of the house. He lived in her house. So there was a kind of a balance of power. Slavery sliced off that masculine role, um, keeping intact the feminine role. And here I'm not using feminine in a stereotypical way. I should say the female role. Um, it's c- because it had to co-opt it or chose to co-opt it. Um, there are some places in Baltimore and Philadelphia where black men are 
reclaiming that role of, of taking care of the village, of reclaiming the streets. And when you see black men patrolling the streets, they're taking that role. Um, you see a lot, there's a lot more parity in African-American households than many people know. For instance, uh, black women usually have their own bank accounts. Um, and black men do a lot more domestic labor. Then it's, it's, it's a myth that black men don't. I mean, actually, when um, you take into account non-monetary payments, black men pace or exceed men of other races in how much they contribute to the care of children. They just buy the pampers instead of giving the woman the money for the pampers. You see what I mean? And so it's not as stereotypical. The Monaghan Report left all that out. Um, this, this fear of the black matriarchy, it's, it's, it, there's much more going on there than, than he could have known in his time, but that we know now. I think um, because we're running out of time, even though I know that you have probably more questions, what I'd like to do is, unfortunately, just thank Dr. Parks for coming and being with us tonight and sharing. <laughs>